<clears throat> I should have dismissed the kids. That's the second week in a row I've failed at that. I'm sorry. All right, so when I was in high school, my, uh, my youth group took a trip to Chicago. So we, I, I, we don't, I know youth groups don't do that as much anymore, but when I was in youth group growing up, mission trips were a really, really big deal. You'd go and you'd, uh, you'd go to some place and you'd do some work, right? Um, often painting, which is an interesting one. Now, especially as I think about it, because I got to imagine those paint jobs were awful, right? Has anybody been there? And like, if you've done those, yeah, Kyle knows, right? So like, I'm, I'm terrible. I hate painting, first of all. It's just not something I enjoy. Um, and I'm awful at it as an adult, right? So Jen has completely banned me from cutting in anywhere in our house because it's that bad. I try, I go slow, it takes me forever, and it's still not good. And it's not just her being picky. It's just actually not good. She's right. And so I can't even imagine what 16 or 15-year-old me was like, just smacking it on the walls, right? It had to be awful. But anyway, so we, we took a trip down to Chicago uh, to do that. We did a little, some minor repairs. We did um, some painting. And but that's not really the point of, of my story this morning, because there's one particular thing that, that stuck out to me on that, on that trip. Um, like you often did when you went on a, on a trip that way, you'd have a day to, to do some fun stuff in the city, and, and Chicago's a great place to do that. So a day we weren't working, we went downtown Chicago to kind of hang out, to see, you know, you go to Michigan Mile, you can see all the cool stuff that, sh- that Chicago's got down there. Uh, and that was awesome, and, but there's one memory that really sticks out in my mind. We were walking with a group of friends down, in downtown Chicago with the big skyscrapers everywhere, and I remember turning a corner and almost basically walking into a guy who was, who was standing literally on top of a box with a sandwich board on both sides, who was shouting to anybody who would listen, the end is near, repent. Uh, maybe you can picture that in your head. I don't know. Um, but 15-year-old me, it was terrifying, right? Because he's yelling, he's screaming, he's shaking his sign. Um, and and it, I just remember it affected me in a really big way. Because he's, he's calling out the same kind of message. Repent, these days are evil. Repent, judgment is coming. Repent or you're going to hell. It's that kind of declaration that he was making. And it was terrifying for me to, for two different reasons. First, just it's unsettling to have anybody yell at you ever, right? We all know that. That's just not something that we enjoy. But also, I had grown up in, in the church, and, I, and, it, and it affected me in another way, too. Because even though looking at him, you could realize, like, there's a lot about this scenario that isn't right. At the same time, though, it made me start to wonder, what if he's right? A little bit of doubt creeped into my psyche. What if I've been doing it all wrong? What if I'm not saved? Or what if I've sinned too much? Am I really risking the fires of hell here? I don't know if any of you ever experienced kind of that existential crisis that you have where you start to question, even though you've been in the faith for a long time, maybe you didn't do it right. Maybe you're not good enough. Maybe it doesn't work. And so that message, that angry message of turn or burn can creep in in that, in that way. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can't. But the point is that the word repent has a lot of baggage attached to it, doesn't it? Now, we're just kicking off a year in the book of Matthew. We're going to work through the entire thing. and It's a gospel written to Jewish people, or as I've been calling it, church people, people who are in the faith. 
But it's also a book written for the sake of those who aren't church people, who aren't in. So it's, it's written to a group of people who already know who God is for the sake of those who don't. So last week, we talked about how Jesus comes as the new Moses, pushing us to root our identity in, 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 that, in the foundation, of, put, root our identity in Jesus as the foundation of everything that we do moving forward. Last week, we, we pointed out that one of the big questions of faith that we start with is do we, trust that God, do we trust God? Do we trust that he is who he says he is? And do we trust that we are who he says we are? Because the answers to those questions play out through the entire book of Matthew, especially uh, the next couple weeks we're going to be looking at. Because this week we're going to continue in Matthew 4. And so if you've got a Bible or an app or whatever you want to look at, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 4 today. We're going to start at verse 12. And it says this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what is said to the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, uh, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, our section today begins with something we talked about last week. Matthew works really hard throughout the entire book to show, to show Israel that Jesus isn't somebody who just comes out of nowhere, but he's the person that everything's been driving towards. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But that's what we talked about last week. What I want to talk about this week is the way that Jesus begins his preaching ministry in the book of Matthew. Because he begins it in a very dramatic way. In Matthew, the first words that Jesus preaches is this phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Which when I was younger, obviously then would bring up immediately that experience that I had in Chicago. He didn't, maybe he said those exact words, I don't know, but it resonates closely, doesn't it? Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he walking around Israel with a sandwich board and a soapbox and yelling at people? Or is he doing something different? You see, I think this phrase, this particular passage here, is crucial to understand before we can move into any other part of Matthew. The book of Matthew, as it's building its theology, starts simple, builds a foundation. And so actually today, what we're going to see is we're going to repeat some themes that we've looked at over the past two years. So some of the things we'll talk about you may have heard before. It's good to repeat every now and then. But it's so important for us to understand this statement if we're going to understand anything else. Next week, we move into the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. The key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is understanding what Jesus is doing in this phrase here. You see, I think we actually struggle to understand a lot of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount because we don't understand what this means. Because the phrase, the repent, is such a huge part of everything else we're going to do. So what is Jesus talking about? See, not too long ago, if you were here with us, we did a whole sermon series on the word repent. Like I said, we're going to repeat some of that. But we need to start, to make, we need to, we need to start by making sure we understand what the word repent means. See, the word has its roots in the Hebrew word teshuva, or tashuva, depending on how you want to pronounce it. At its core, tashuva, what it literally means is to turn. 
So we're, you're going this way, and the Bible says tashuva, teshuva, or tashuva, you turn and you start going in a different direction. When it's applied to faith, it's essentially saying you're not walking in step with Jesus, so turn and come back in line. Come back into the way that, you, that he wants you to live. It's actually supposed to be understood as a beautiful intention, or um, invitation, I'm sorry. That you're going this way, which is not helping you, so turn and come back to the way that God wants you to go. Repent sinners is a phrase you hear in Scripture often, and so it also, re- it also requires us then to understand what the word sinner means because I think we've twisted it in a lot of different ways. See, the New Testament word for sinner is the word hamartia in Greek. It's literally an archery term. So if you were a Greek archer, you had a target you were aiming at, you would shoot an arrow, and if you hit it, then you didn't hamartia. If you missed it, you did. You sinned, right? So hamartia, to sin, literally means to miss the mark. Teshuva means to turn, Hamartia, the word for sin, means to miss the mark. You'll need to remember both of those things as we continue to work through Matthew. They're critically important to understand how both of those things work. We've messed up both of those words in some pretty serious ways. Repent often carries with it this really angry kind of soapbox thing, and sinners has equally as much baggage as the word repent. So what Jesus is essentially saying here at the beginning of Matthew is here's how I want you to live. Here's the mark. Here's the thing I want you to aim at. If you've missed, you've sinned. And so turn, adjust your aim, and start towards the target again. It's that simple. Here's the way I want you to live. Here's the way that I think is the best for you, that I know is the best for you. Hopefully you can hit it. If you don't, well, then you're missing the mark. You're off target, and so turn and get back on track. See, the key here is the word repent does call us to conviction. It does suggest that we're doing things wrong, which is fair because in many cases we are, right? And that is a big deal. There are things in our lives that we're not doing the way that we should, and we, most of us know that if we actually take time to be honest about it that the things in our lives that we realize are not working the way that they should, that we're missing a mark, and that there's something we could be doing better. That's conviction. This idea that, hey, you're not where you should be, but then the invitation of God is, so then come back. Conviction is very different than guilt. We've said it a number of times here. Conviction says you're off target, so come back in line. Guilt says you're off target, so there's no way back in line. We don't work in guilt, neither does Jesus but he does work in conviction. The word, the word repent convicts, but it doesn't condemn. It doesn't condemn at all. So we can't misunderstand that. It's an invitation. There are things in your life that are hurting you. Don't take that lightly, but let's work on fixing it, on changing it, on changing our trajectory slightly. It convicts, but it doesn't condemn. See, Jesus begins his ministry with that declaration. Repent. Turn. You're aiming at the wrong target, so adjust. Do something. Move. Take action. Turn away from what's hurting you towards what brings you life. Hopefully, you can keep that in mind throughout the entire rest of the Sermon on the Mount because it's critically important. What Jesus is going to continually do is go, this is an area where you're missing the mark, so let's do better. A constant invitation towards something better and more beautiful. 
But it also then leads us into the second part of this declaration. Why turn? And this part is equally important. It says, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or as Luke says, because the kingdom of God is at hand. So if you were to read it in Matthew, he always talks about the kingdom of heaven. Luke always talks about the kingdom of God. They're the same idea. They just use a different word for it. Now briefly, I want to talk about the kingdom of heaven. And I can't spend all the time I would love to here because we just don't have enough time this morning. Um, and also, I'd sound like a broken record because I talk about it so often. But, um, but it's still super, super important. So many people, when they think about the kingdom of heaven or heaven, they think about a place that we go after we die. How many of you have had that concept before, right? Right. So heaven is this place that you die and then you go to heaven eventually. And while that's true, there, the Bible very clearly talks about that the heaven stretches forward into the future eternity. Um, what, what we miss in just that simple understanding is that that's too small of a scope. As you read through Scripture, you see that Jesus, Paul, and Peter talk about the kingdom of heaven as something that goes forward into the future. Yes, that's true. But also something that goes backwards into the past. They talk about it as something eternal. And just simply in the word eternal itself, you realize that eternity stretches both ways, which you can only go so far with that in your mind before it breaks, right? So don't do that this morning or we'll all be broken, right? Actually, our, our brains are okay at, fo at focusing on the eternity of the future, right? Like there's this unlimited possibility of the future. We're, we can wrap our minds sort of around that. As soon as you go backwards, it all breaks, right? Like how do you go backwards to eternity? That doesn't work for us very well. But that is how Scripture talks, that using the word eternity stretches in both directions, so Jesus is not then making a kind of turn or burn declaration here. He's not saying repent or you won't make it to heaven. That's not what he's saying at all. If you actually look at the words, what he's saying is repent because the kingdom of heaven is already here. You see it? Like, can we put back up the passage again, Jeff, the, the, the repent one? If you look at it, you'll see Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It is already existing in this present space. Later on in the book of Matthew, we're actually going to look at a parable of Jesus, which is my favorite to help us wrap our mind around it. He tells a parable about wheat and weeds, and we won't break that one down because we'll get to do that in the future. But essentially what Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who sowed wheat in his field, and it begins to grow. But then an enemy comes and seeds weeds, and the, and the weeds grow right along with the wheat. It's this idea that the kingdom of heaven is already growing, it's already here, it's already produced fruit, and yet it's intertwined with these other broken things. And I think that's the world that we live in. That's what we see, right? That we can see these beautifully heavenly things that are mixed with these really messed up, broken things. See, what Jesus is saying in this particular phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, is he's saying that the heavenly life is available to you now. Not fully, but in a significant and literal way. And my guess is, at some point in your life, you've experienced the kingdom of heaven in a literal way. When? Well, have you ever experienced maybe a pure moment of love? Maybe it was your wedding day or when your children were born or when you witnessed a selfless act. Take yourself back to that moment. Remember what it felt like to be in that space. And if I were to ask you to describe it, my guess is it would be a little transcendent, be hard. Hard to describe exactly what those feelings are like. 
I firmly believe that those experiences, those moments of pure, whether it's love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or self-control, those moments are transcendently beautiful because they brush right up against heaven. In those moments, you're actually getting a little taste of what the heavenly life is all about. That is something bigger than we can even fathom and yet experience it now. If you think back to those areas in your life, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven has come near, makes sense to you because you've experienced just a little taste of it. See, by walking in the way of Jesus, we can experience little tastes of heaven now because what Jesus is saying is repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around us. He's saying, so turn away from the, the things that aren't producing that kind of life where you're missing so that you can experience more and more often these little tastes of heaven that he hopes for us. Or as I have said often around here, turn from the things that are holding you back and wife, wife, walk into the life that God wants for you, a life of flourishing. We, it's a phrase we use so often around here at Harper Life. Jesus begins his ministry with the phrase, repent, you're missing the mark, you're doing things that aren't leading you towards this heavenly life, so turn, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn because it's all around you and I want you to experience, he's saying. Hold on to that idea. The idea that, there's a, that walking in the way of Jesus leads us to this, these, this kind of life that it lets us experience little tastes of heaven regularly. Because I want to show you what that looks like practically. And, and actually, I'll let Matthew do it. We can just keep reading in this particular passage. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, we're going to have to tackle this section quickly, too. Unfortunately, there's a lot of different ideas here. Um, if, if I move past anything too quickly, I'll throw out an invitation. I throw out often. Call me. Let's grab coffee. We can talk about it for a long time. I would love to. Uh, but we do need to understand what's going on in this passage. Um, so we've got disciples. This is, a story, this is another one of those stories that when you actually slow down and think about it, it's strange for our minds because it doesn't really fit in the way that we run our culture. Right? We, it brings up a number of questions for us. One, why does Jesus pick these guys? Two, why do they just leave what they're doing? That's weird. Right? Can you even imagine that? You're at your job. You're doing your work. Uh, and somebody says, hey, let's go. And you're like, okay, see ya. And you just go. Like, that's not something we do, right? So how does that happen? What's going on in this story? Well, in order for us to even begin to wrap our mind around what's happening in this story, we need to understand how the Jewish rabbi system worked. We talked about this before. Again, it's another recap. But the way it worked is every Jewish child would get a base level of education in Hebrew scripture at the local synagogue. They'd go and basically have Saturday school. I'm not sure if it was just on Saturday, but you get the point. You'd learn the basics of scripture, of Hebrew scripture. And then what would happen is you'd realize that some people have a gift for this kind of thing, that excel in that space, and others wouldn't. If you showed promise you could then apply to go to essentially Pharisee school, right? You could go to be trained to be a, a teacher of the law. Now, Pharisees get a bad rap in Scripture, um, 
and sometimes very rightly so, but essentially they were the local pastors of the day. There were some bad ones, of course, and there were some really good ones too. So going to Pharisee school wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but you'd go to then study and, and learn more about the Torah, about the law, and how to teach people in that. Now, if you didn't show promise, you just went to work. You did something else, right? Maybe a fisherman, whatever it might, what else it might be. So let's say, let's say you are one of those people who showed promise and you make it to Pharisee school. Your, your hope then is to become the best at it, that you can be in that space, to learn the most, to show the most promise again. Because if you were to do that, you, hopefully then a rabbi or a teacher would select you to be one of his disciples. A rabbi, all rabbis had disciples. That wasn't unique to Jesus at all. Uh, it was a very common thing actually. You see, the goal of the rabbi was to choose disciples who would become miniature versions of themselves, people who would walk like them, talk like them, teach like them, who would eventually become rabbis themselves and hopefully perpetuate the kind of teaching that this rabbi wanted them to. They would then take on more disciples who would become versions of that rabbi, and you get the cycle. It would then spread and grow in that particular way. So Jesus' mission with his disciples is exactly the same as other rabbis. He wants his disciples to become just like him, to walk like him, talk like him, teach like him. Jesus' mission with his disciples is identical, but his choice of disciples couldn't be more different than the normal process. Why, when Jesus, calls, uh, when Jesus called, did the disciples leave what they were doing and immediately follow? Because what were they doing, right? They're not studying in Pharisee school, meaning they didn't make the cut. These are Hebrew school dropouts, right? They're not the cream of the crop. They're not the best of the best, or they wouldn't be fishermen in the first place. So they had absolutely no right to become the disciple of a rabbi in that culture. And yet, here was a rabbi, a very, very important person in Jewish society, who was calling them to follow. So it's a big deal. This is a prestigious calling that they're getting, and so, of course, they, they leave what they were doing to go do that. It's hard to actually compare that in our culture because we don't have something that would be that prestigious by just being associated with, and we'd have different opinions on what that would look like, but hopefully you can wrap your mind around that a little bit. So Jesus makes the declaration, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn from what you're doing and follow me, he says to his disciples. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn from what you're doing. Become like me. Turn from uh, what you're doing because, uh, because when you become like me, you'll see that heaven is all around you, Jesus is declaring to his disciples. Last week, we talked about us securing our identity in Jesus. The fact that he says that you matter, that you're valuable, that you mean something to him. And that message is affirmed here in this passage as well. And so with that part secure, we move to the next part. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What Jesus is asking each of us, like his disciples, is to leave the life that we knew. Now, to be clear, he's not necessarily declaring to all of you to quit your jobs. Um, maybe he is, but probably for the most of us, he's not. That's not what he's saying. He is, however, saying the life of a Jesus follower is to leave the old life behind. Paul reaffirms that regularly in his letters. It's something he talks about often. He talks about putting your old self to death and putting on your new. He says, take off your old self and clothe yourself with Jesus. In other words, repent, turn, 
and begin living a life inside of this whole new system. One in which your value is secure, and because of that, you're now working each day to become more like Jesus. Remember, what does it mean to be a disciple? It's to, be, it's to mirror yourself after the rabbi, to be like him in every single way, to walk like him, talk like him, teach like him, act like him. See, the invitation is hyper-practical. forces us to ask the question, where in your life are you not mirroring Jesus? We all have them, myself included, all of us. Places where we know things aren't the way they should be. Now, we're really good at ignoring them, at stuffing them down, at making sure that we don't look at them or see them because they're uncomfortable. It doesn't require us to do something about it if we actually see what it looks like. But that's the invitation. That, that's the way Jesus begins his ministry. In those areas that you're missing the mark, turn. Because heaven's all around you. Maybe it's, maybe it's anger. Maybe you're struggling with anger. Maybe your fuse is short or your patience is thin. Particularly coming out of a season where we were very, very confined to a small space, maybe you've seen that one play itself out a little more than normal lately. Unfortunately, in some ways I have. That was something that I had to pray a lot about and work on. But when you're operating in your anger, does it feel heavenly? course not, right? Because most likely in your anger, you're sinning. And I know I, I want you to hear that word without all of the baggage attached. It, when you're, you're, most likely in your anger, you're missing the mark of what Jesus desires for you. And so this invitation he begins with is for you. Repent, turn, walk differently. Because in your anger, you don't experience heavenly things, but heaven is all around you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There are lots of other ones we could pick. Maybe you struggle with lust. The draw of those websites is so strong. You find yourself thinking about someone who isn't your spouse or a number of other ways that can play itself out. But I'll ask, when you give in to temptation, does it feel heavenly or does it feel empty? It's because you've sinned. You've missed the mark of what Jesus desires for you. Now, let's be clear. Your value remains secure. We're not here in, in, the, in the business of shame or guilt on this one. But we also can't avoid the fact that it is something that hurts you. Your value remains secure. But the declaration is turn from that thing. Repent. Walk differently. Because that life is not producing heavenly outcomes, and yet heaven is all around you. There are other ways it can play out too. Maybe it's worry, which is a weird one for us. A need to control every situation, every detail, or every detail, or control every detail, or your mind starts to spin into all the what ifs. Some of you know what I'm talking about out there. But I'll ask the same question I've asked with every other. When you're caught in a worry and anxiety cycle, does that feel heavenly? Now, maybe there is a clinical reason for your anxiety. If that's the case, listen to your doctor. Medicine is a gift from God, too. I want to make sure we all know that. This is not trying to, to in any way shame that or to encourage somebody to not take care of themselves. Please do that. But if you're not doing anything with that anxiety cycle, you're just allowing yourself to live in a life, you live your life in a constant state of worry. 
This phrase even seems hard, but I hear it through the, thing, the, the lens we've gone through this whole time. You're sinning in there. What that means, though, is you're missing the mark of what Jesus desires for you. Your value is secure. It's not a shame or judgment thing in that way, but it is a declaration that that isn't a kind of thing that leads us to the heavenly life. And so Jesus' declaration at the beginning of Matthew is for you in this space too. Repent, turn, walk differently because instead of the thing that's not leading you into that heavenly space, heaven is all around you and you have access to it if you mirror your life after Jesus. And we could go on and on which is exactly why Jesus starts preaching the way he does. Because as humans, we are constantly choosing the lesser. We're living lives, that, lives doing things that are hurting us while missing the fact that we have access to heaven all around us. We have access to those little tastes of eternity, but have completely missed it. We've missed the mark. We've sinned. Which is why Jesus' message is supposed to be such good news. He's not standing on a box with a sandwich board throwing out condemnation. That's not what he's doing. He's actually doing exactly the opposite. He's inviting everyone into something different, something better, something fuller. He's inviting you into something different. He's inviting us into something different, to be the kind of community that is constantly walking with each other, trying to find the mark, and encouraging each other to walk towards it. If you're here this morning and you're feeling the conviction of Jesus' words, hear the invitation that he's giving to you. Repent. Turn from the thing that you're missing. I can't encourage you enough to actually take those words seriously. And also, I can't encourage you enough to, to not do that alone. To connect with the others here. Because we're all missing in one way or another, but some of us have found marks because of our mistakes earlier, and we can help each other walk through those things. Whether it's grabbing a coffee with me, or with Lisa, or with just somebody that you trust, whatever it might be, I want to encourage you to at least begin to engage with that statement that Jesus says, turn from the thing that you know is hurting you. Walk with somebody to try to find what the mark actually is, and begin to walk together with them in that, because... Jesus begins his ministry by saying those things that are hurting you don't need to hurt you anymore. Those areas that you've missed, you don't need to stay on that trajectory. Turn away from it because the kingdom of heaven is all around you. It's near, and, I, and Jesus is saying, I don't want you to miss it. In just a few minutes, we're going to do communion. We're going to take communion. I love that communion falls on a week like this. Because what communion does is it reminds us that sin isn't our master, that we've all fallen short, that we've all missed in one way or another, that we're all continuing to miss in one way or another. And yet, it's been paid for. The bread is Jesus' body broken for us. The, the, the wine is his blood shed for us to tell us those areas that you've missed don't affect your value because it's secure in him. We talked about that last week. And so now, when we come to the table, we realize we have an opportunity to do things differently. To walk out of the life that's been hurting us and into the life of Jesus because of his sacrifice on the cross. Communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives. The declaration that we need Christ 
And it's also the declaration that we need each other too. Communion is a table we all come to together. In COVID, it's a little weird and different, but yet it's something that we share together as a community. Because each of us has fallen short. Each of us have failed in one way or another or are continuing to now. And so communion is a reminder that failure is not what defines us in Christ. Communion is a reminder that Christ has defeated death and because of that, sin is not our master. Communion is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm the acceptance of that gift in our lives. And so this morning, our table is open to anyone who wants to do that. Anyone who wants to accept the gift of Christ's love for them again or for the first time, you're invited to come up. So just a few minutes, I'll invite you to come up the center aisle uh, and just grab a plate. You can share it with your family or take it for yourself. Um, I encourage you to take it back to your seat. Um, Pray over it. Let let it sink in what you're doing um, and make it a meaningful time. The band will come up and we'll just have some music in the background as well. So as we come to the table, we hear Paul's words in the book of Colossians. At the table, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. When we come to the table, we realize we put away the old life and clothe ourselves with the new. A life that moves away from those things that hurt us into a life of kindness and humility, gentleness, love, and patience. And so Jesus says in Luke 22, When the time came, Jesus and his apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, Take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread. He broke it. He said this, this is my body broken for you, given to you for the forgiveness of your sins. When you eat it, remember me, he says. Likewise, he took the cup. He says this cup is a sign of the covenant between God and his people, a new covenant signed and sealed with my blood, poured out as a sacrifice for you to wash away all your failure and invite you into the new life. It says, when you drink it, remember me. Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize in so many different ways that we've missed the mark. We've sinned. There are things in our lives that are not heavenly, that are not leading us towards the kind of life that you desire for us. God, we pray for clarity on those. We we pray even for your conviction on those to help us see them for what they are. God, then we pray for your courage 
to be able to turn away from those things. From those things that are hurting us, that are holding us back, for those things that are uglier than we hoped they'd be. And then we pray for your eyes. Eyes to see that the kingdom of heaven has come near. That it's all around us. That you want us to walk with you towards it. God, may each of us in this next week experience a little taste of what that heavenly life looks like. Amen.